Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. This is a bonus episode. As you know, on this show, ordinarily we look at the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward, one book every week in publication order. After every calendar year's worth of books, I do a bonus episode. We are now at the end of the 1984 books, and that concluded last week with episode 91, Frontios. Next week, episode 92, we'll cover book 93, Planet of Fire the first of the 1985 novelizations, and published slightly out of sequence, with book 92 coming in episode 93, the week after that, The Caves of Andrew Zani. But it is time for a bonus episode where we do not follow the books in publication order. Bonus episodes feature interviews with or conversations about other Doctor Who writers, and topics that are related to, or semi-related to, target novelizations. These are meant to give the show more of a broader focus, and hopefully to serve as an introduction to the target novelizations to other listeners. To that end, this week I am absolutely thrilled to have, as a guest on the show, Mr. Andrew Smith, a Doctor Who episode writer and a Doctor Who novelization author. From Full Circle, the season 18 classic that, as many of you know, is one of my favorite Doctor Who stories of all time. We have already covered the Full Circle novelization on this show back in episode 71 with co-producer Jim Sangster, but now we are going to hear from the man himself. So, without any further introduction, let's get to it. The vervoids are probably the best parody joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you go. That's it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. There are probably eleven and handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is, and you're all set. You know he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a a drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. You are listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages! I am absolutely ecstatic to have my next guest sitting down with me. Long-time listeners of this podcast will know that this is a Season 18 house, and that I have spent a lot of time in the past talking about how much the story and the book Full Circle means to me, and I am sitting here today with Andrew Smith, the author of Full Circle, both TV and novelization. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for asking me. Um, yeah, recently discovered the, the podcast, thanks to Jim Sangster, and I'm, I've loved it, and um, I think you, you do a great job, and uh, as I said, on social media, it's, it's going to reignite, it's reignited my my target love as well and i'm going going back to the books i read as a as a kid loving it 
in many ways, the format of this podcast was a failure of the imagination because I started doing this during the pandemic when we were still in the later stages of lockdown. And I began by just reading out my old blog posts about the first 16 books, which in publication order is the early to mid 70s. The format has expanded. So now I have guests and now I am writing new scripts for books that I never blogged about. But I never envisioned a time when I would have the authors of the books listening to the podcast and <laughs> appearing on the show. But the show is a much better place for the participation of people like you and Philip Hinchcliffe and so many others. Yeah, but it's it's just such a great listen. And you know, and I I you know, I've I've, I've notched up quite a few listens now and, and it just does that lovely thing. It, it, some of the books I, I remember so fondly uh, reading as a kid. Before we had VHS tapes, even you know, we we just here in the UK, you know, we just we just watched the show a Saturday night, and then it was gone. So some shows we get a repeat of if we were lucky in the summer or at Christmas, but otherwise we just waited for those books to come out once a month and revisit the show uh, through them. And there's there's yeah a, a lot of the episodes are about those books that I remember dropping onto my mat. Uh, through mail order or the ones that I go into my local high street and get them on the day they came out. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Going back, my, my very first one I got was in October 1975. October 75. So that was in the infancy of the target line almost. Let me yeah. see if I can figure out through my publication order notes the August 75 book would have been Doctor Who and the Green Death. Was that your first? No, I got three because I uh, was holidaying in Blackpool. Now, October 1975, I was 13. I was holidaying in Blackpool with uh, the family, and we went to the Doctor Who exhibition on the Golden Mile, saw the exhibition, and then went into the shop, and there were these books I didn't know existed. Uh, and I got. And I think it's your first book, listening to the podcast, Doctor Who and the Cybermen. That is right. I bought three in the same day, and that was also my first. That and that was my first one, and it just it was Patrick Troughton, the second Doctor, my Doctor, and the Cybermen, my very favourite and one among my first memories. Uh, Doctor Who and the Giant Robots uh, was another one, and Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowmen. Uh, I got those three in um, the exhibition at Blackpool. But Doctor and the Cybermen, I, you know, I, I just know that that was the first one I read. So you have one Jerry Davis and you have two of Terence Dix's richest books. That's a very great introduction to the show, right? They were at least to the books right there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure I got the, the Dalek, the original Dalek book fairly early. Um, I, mean, I hope the memory doesn't cheat. I'm sure the giant robot was one of them. But, um, uh, but the, the Daleks was an early one. Uh, yeah, the Auton Invasion, as it was called. That would have been an early one as well. Yeah, I think at the time there were only about nine or ten books. The, 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 I think it was Doctor Who and the Crusaders was another one. I didn't have a, a memory of William Hartnell, but I remember reading those books. Uh, featuring the first Doctor being excited by Doctor Who and the Zarbi, a.k.a. the Web Planet. That was one that 
I remember fondly as well. Yeah, there were those, there were the three Hartnell novelizations that came out in hardback in the '60s and then paperback in the States, and then yeah. those became the very first three Target books in 1973, if memory serves me right. I'm sure it does. So you would have been reading the the originals right there at the beginning. Right. Yeah. You're a proper historian. It's, it's so interesting to talk to you. Um, yeah, and it is. It, it just, you know, you make a connection back to the show. You make the, the Target books. You know, again, there's I often say that there are, there are episodes that I remember watching as a kid. Uh, and I have to say, hello, Fraser, because I love the Dominators. <laughs> you have just made Fraser's year. <laughs> Because I remember watching it, I was, I'm sorry, hear me out, I was six or seven years old, and I loved it. And I remember having a dream or a nightmare about the Quarks after it, and I loved the Quarks. And I will never defend it as a great story, but I just, it kicks off a chemical reaction in my brain. I remember watching it, and I had this dream or, or nightmare that featured the Quarks coming over a cliff top. And I couldn't believe it. when the VHS tape came out and I watched it and there it was, the Clarks coming over a clifftop. And I, you know, and I remember having obviously watched it and then dreamt about it as a six or seven year old. And, uh, and I was so thrilled. And the, the Clarks, well, I've got a little, little Clark figure on the windowsill, windowsill here. Um, and they, they featured in comics that I read as well. TV comic, the Doctor Who comic strips, the Clarks were all over the place. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I love it. And I, I've got to say to Wendy Pabry and Fraser Hines and that, how much as a kid I loved that story because they did not enjoy it. <laughs> they did not at all. <laughs> they thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? But so I watched that and I, I lapped it up with a spoon and I still love it. It's got the same, it's got the same cliffhanger every single episode, doesn't it? <laughs> Quarks, destroy! <laughs> And then Ronald Allen comes in and says, no quarks, don't destroy it, stop. <laughs> Spoilers. But uh, I, just, I see a quark and I just go, ah. <laughs> quarks. Uh, love it, love it. Fraser is going to have his year made by the fact that you and me are now both on uh, Team Dominator. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I listened to that episode recently, and I, I was definitely on Team Fraser, so I'll tell you. Well, I was happy to put my point across and express how little that story means to me, but if you have a Doctor Who story... Oh, you put it across. <laughs> <laughs> but the larger point is, he loves the story, you love the story. How am I going to argue with that? So I am quite happy to... It's very positive, isn't it? It's very positive. And there, there are stories, you know, there's, there's not many, you know, I'd say... I'd, there are stories again. I remember watching that I I didn't enjoy, and I, I've had that very happy journey of coming around to really like stories that I didn't enjoy in first broadcast, like Underworld. You know, again, I, you know, when you see it in isolation, you think actually that's that's not a bad story. And um, I remember Nightmare of Eden. I I missed episode three, which and I didn't mind missing it at all at the time. But it's I sort of come back to Nightmare of Eden now, and I I really enjoy it as a story. And in fact, my older daughter, as a kid, it was her very favourite story. You know, she's about seven or eight, so maybe she had the whole Dominators thing with that. 
But actually, it's a really good story. It's just not a great production. But a, but a, but a really good, a really good story, and quite cutting edge for Doctor Who actually, and something I can relate to now. I mean, it, it, it um, you know, drug dealers, and that sort of thing. Who something I, you know, in my other career, I dealt with that, and um, uh, yeah, and it's it's uh, it's obviously a, a something that was close to uh, Bob Baker's heart because again, it's something he 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 uh, he wrote a very he and Dave Martin um, uh, wrote a very good script for a series called Taggart for Philip Hinchcliffe uh, called Big Elephant uh, uh, about heroin dealers. Um, yeah, so so yeah, something something I watched on transmission didn't appreciate it too much, but I've yeah, it's nice it's it's nice to make that journey be far more positive about something. And I, and I do really enjoy it now. Nightmare is one of those stories that had it been made a little bit earlier or a little bit later with a different budget and a different director, it would probably be in everybody's top 20. But unfortunately, the choice of director really didn't suit the... I know that I read the book first before the episode cycled around on my PBS station. And when, the, when I read the book, I was absolutely enthralled and then when I finally got to the TV, my mm-hmm. impression was, wait, that's all there is? This is not anything like the book at all. And then I learned about the troubled production uh, turmoil behind the scenes, and that probably explains why the TV is so uneven. Yeah, Graham, Graham had to step in, didn't he, um, on that one. Uh, and also the budget, budgetary problems that, that season and industrial action and everything else. Of course, you know, a great story, but the thing is Doctor Who, and as a scriptwriter, you know, I write stories, the other writers write stories, uh, but Doctor Who, Doctor Who tells stories, but Doctor Who is, it's, it, what it is mainly is a TV production, and that's a lot of talents coming together. And I think what, what happened Nightmare of Eden was, again, probably largely budgetary, but also some other decisions that were made where I think, you know, it wasn't a great production. It was a really good story. Um, but let down possibly in a, in a big way by budgetary concerns. I mean, I look at the the customs agents in that, and the peaks of their caps look as if they've been cut out with kids. <laughs> They're just not rounded. Little things like that, you know. Um, and it just looks, yeah, they 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 were running out of money, perhaps, or whatever. I don't know. But a great story. And some of the acting choices are all, all over the place. Nobody is on the same page as to whether or not this is a dark tragedy or a lighthearted farce. Well, yes. And, of course, interesting choice of accents in places. <laughs> <laughs> Louis Fiander. Whereas your Doctor Who was directed by Peter Grimwade and scored by Peter Howell. So you could not have done yeah. better than you did in terms of the production lottery. Uh, yeah, it flattered everything on the page it was i was very very lucky and max samet who was a, the uh the film cameraman on location as well did such a good job but peter grimwood as a director did a fabulous job and then i was so lucky i feel like george baker and richard willis you know george baker and richard willis for me i mean i i i, I couldn't believe it when they were cast um maybe not so well known in the states but richard had done a thing called the feathered serpents and I recommend people hunt that down. It was a kids series, uh, uh, ran for two seasons, 
uh, Aztec story with uh, Patrick Troughton as uh, a high priest and and quite written by John Kane, who was in Plant of Spiders. Oh yes, yes, uh, Tommy, Tommy. And it's a bri- it, they're it's a brilliant series, and don't be put off by it being a kid series. You watch it now, you think, gee, was was that a kid series? Are people being tortured? You know, not very graphically as it would be now, but gra- graphic for a kid series of the seventies. Um, and Richard was so good, and George Baker, who'd been an I Claudius and very popular series here, like Please Sir and the Fen Street Gang and Bowler, where he, he played a, a a gangster character. Um, yeah, and uh, in fact, I recently discovered rediscovered a letter that he wrote to me after Full Circle, which was really nice. Oh wow. He's a lovely, lovely guy, and um, had a couple of chats with him where he's so so encouraging and, and complimentary. Um, but the whole the whole cast were lovely, really. There's a lot of British classic television that I have not seen, just being on the wrong side of the pond. But you have two actors from the James Bond classic on Her Majesty's Secret Service yeah. in your story. <laughs> And George Baker actually does the voice of James Bond for a good half hour in the middle of the picture. That's right, when he's undercover. Uh, yeah, yeah. James Bree. Yeah. It's a much yeah. smaller role, but he's definitely in it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they were, they were, they were just such a lovely group. I tended to hang out with uh, uh, Richard and Bernard and June and Matthew, you know, the outlers. Um, uh, but but George George made the time actually specifically you know he, he I remember actually he was going he was coming off the set and he's walking up the the steps and saw me and oh came over and had a lovely long chat um, yeah he's such a nice guy yeah good times really nice very happy memories we have a lot of ground that I want to cover yeah today yeah. but. I figure the first thing I want to do is play with you a game of 20 questions, given your enthusiasm for the format. Here we go. So I am going to load up the randomizer. I have no idea what I'm going to get between 1963 and 2022. Smudge is trying to bite me as I hit the keyboard, but I will do the best that I can at risk to personal harm. All right, here we go. The story has been loaded. This has been randomly picked, not pre-selected. I just learned the identity of the story 10 seconds ago. I am one random Doctor Who story beginning in 1963 with 20 yes or no questions. Andrew Smith. Who am I? Right. <laughs> I was very tempted to go for the Hail Mary on this, but I'm not doing it. What I have done, I have written, I have a piece of paper here in which I have written down the name of a story, and I attempted to go for it. I'm not going to go for it, but if that is it, I shall be <laughs> so disappointed in myself. Okay. Is it a David Tennant story? It is not a David Tennant story. Question two. Right. We can rip up the family of blood then. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a black and white story? It is not a black and white story. 
So we've now eliminated the 1960s and a chunk of the 2000s. Question three. Is it a 20th century story? Yes, it is a 20th century story, and that is your first yes response. That brings us to question four. Question four, then. Is it a fourth Doctor story? That's a terrific use of the fourth question. And by the way, yes, it is a fourth Doctor story. Question five. Right, we've narrowed it down. (laughs) Right, is the companion... Leela. No, it is not a Leela story. Now, I just assumed that you were going to do what David Barsky did last month and go immediately to (laughs) full circle as your first guest, but you have definitely taken the (laughs) unpredictable route. So I think we're at question six now. We now have, I think, five and a half out of Tom Baker's seven seasons on the table. Is it a Philip Hinchcliffe? It is. It is a Philip Hinchcliffe story. Right. Question seven. How to play this now? Now we're down to three years. Three years out of 60. Yeah. Uh, I've eliminated just a few episodes. Um, I think it's actually it's two and a half seasons because Leela was the back half of season 14. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is it season 13 Ooh, i wish it was season 13 has some all-time bangers but it is not season 13 so now we are at question number eight is it tom baker's first season yes it is tom baker's first season so now you have guaranteed a win because we are at question nine and there are more questions remaining than stories available to choose from Right. The question is, are you going to get it in less in, in ten questions or less? Is it set on Nerva Beacon? Yes, it is set on Nerva Beacon. So now we've narrowed it down to two stories. Because I remember how excited I was to hear the announcer at the end of Genesis of the Daleks, and I was very excited. Is it Revenge of the Cybermen? Revenge of the Cybermen was the the source of my very first VCR malfunction. We had gone away for the weekend, and I set my VCR to tape the back three episodes, and I came home, watched part two, watched part three, desperate to watch part four, and the tape cut out, and it was <sighs> years before I saw it again, which is a long way of saying that, no, it is not Revenge oh! of the the Ark in Space. It is the Ark in Space. I think that was God. question 12, which is a good That's a good middle-of-the-pack performance. That's about as well as I did the one time that I played the game. You flatter me, sir. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it does take me back. I'd say I do... I think one of the most exciting times of my Doctor Who watching was at the end of Genesis of the Daleks when the announcer said, Doctor Who will return next week in The Revenge of the Cybermen. Because I was like, oh, 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 I was 10. Might have been nine, actually. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, Cybermen, yeah, among my very first memories. That's very exciting. Now, in your very long career as a big Finnish writer, have you had the opportunity to write for the Cybermen? Yes, I have. Um, 
I was asked to write a story for the Sixth Doctor featuring the 80s Cybermen with David Banks as a cyber leader. And in fact, it's oh, one of yes. my happiest writing jobs. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I loved the the end product. It's called The Hour of the Cybermen. And um, yeah, I'm very pleased with that one. Very pleased with that one. So I do have to ask, given your fondness for revenge, even though you're writing for the 80s Cybermen and not for Christopher Robbie, did you have the ability or the desire to work in any revenge quotes into our? No. Uh, no, I don't. No, there was something. I do remember I, I got to, I think I'd written two and a half episodes and I realized I didn't have the cyber leader saying, excellent. <laughs> But obviously, that's very 80s, so I went back and I put that in. But I did um, I did notice something. In fact, it's one of my favourite lines, actually, that, you know, and it's going back to, again, it happens quite a bit in Earthshock. It happens in The Five Doctors as well. The Cybermen are shot and they scream. And so I, I had this line in the Cybermen where Cyberman is shot and he screams and the character says, they may have no emotions, but you notice they scream as they die, mm. which, again, one of my favorite lines. Uh, but it's something that struck me. Yeah, no emotions, but my God, they show emotion when they get shot. Um, but uh, I'm just trying to think, because I've done quite a few now. Yeah, I think that's the only... I've done, I've done a few Dalek stories, but that's the only Cyberman story I think I've done. Um, but that was I was really, really pleased to be asked to do that. The first of your big finishes that I heard was the was the Vord story with uh, ah. William Russell and Carol Ann Ford. So you and Philip Hinchcliffe, who have both been on this show, you have both written for the Vord because Philip, of course, did the novelization for Keys of Marinus. So how did that come about? How did you wind up writing a Vord slash First Doctor adventure? I was asked to do it. Um <laughs> I think that was a it was a third or fourth thing I'd done for Big Finish, and David Richardson, the producer, just got inside and said, "We're we're doing this new range. We'd like you to do the opening story, if you could do the third." And there was a particular thing he he wanted, because uh, we had uh, Carol and William were our uh, main cast in that, and I had the director he that okay it was to feature the third, um, and also he 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 wanted. Uh, Ian and Susan to think that the Doctor and Barbara were dead, hopelessly dead by the end of episode two and they start to leave in the TARDIS. Uh, apart from that, do what I wanted to do and uh, so I researched it and uh, came up with that story and it's, it's one of my favourites. And Carol's been very complimentary about it. And in fact, I... I I am today writing something more related to the bird. Oh my goodness. So oddly enough that you mention it, but um, yeah, I can't say any, any more than that, but uh, yeah, I'm verding again on a certain thing, which uh, is a great pleasure. So not only did you get to write for George Baker and James Bree and Richard Willis uh, with season 18, but you've written for uh, a, a terrific, range of Doctor Who All-Stars with Big Finish, because I believe your 
Full Circle sequel had Gemma Redgrave in it. Yes, that was the very first thing she did for Big Finish. And it was all because I, I, um, uh, we were getting ready for the studio and David Richardson, again, the producer, sent me an email and it had the cast list attached to it. And I just thought, that's odd. I don't usually get the cast list. But then I looked and I saw our main decider was being played by Gemma, which uh, was a, a lovely, lovely bit of news and a lovely surprise. And uh, and I've worked with her quite a bit now because I, I've written for and I, well, I've written quite a few unit nemesis stories for Big Finish, but also script edited the uh, four unit nemesis box sets uh, that she was in. So, um, and in fact, uh, yeah, um, bumped into John Dorney and I bumped into the, the Trump demo in London the last time that Trump came to London. Oh. Happened to find ourselves alongside each other there. Oh, hello. <laughs> Yeah, my latest script. I'm right now in the middle of writing my script for Frontios, which will be episode 91. And I could not help but uh, mention him in the script. I think there's an unfortunate number of episodes of this podcast where I have to refer to him one way or the other. And uh, Frontios will be another one. Yeah. I'm reading Frontios. Again, getting back into. Thought I had it here, actually. But, yeah, getting back into the books. Oh, here we are. Yes. Magic yeah, copies. Ah, oh, snap. We are both holding up Frontios. There we go. Mine still has the original uh, B. Dalton books price sticker from when I purchased this in 1985 or 86. Ah, right. Right. I, I yeah, I, 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 I love Chris's writing. Um. And and Frontios, uh, yeah, is my favourite Peter Davison uh, serial. And I love hearing your episodes on Legopolis and uh, Cash of Alva. I think Cash of Alva is exceptional. I mean, years ago, I remember just um, I was a surveillance officer in counterterrorism for a number of years. I went through a lot of audiobooks that are in plots. <laughs> and I remember get, getting the CDs of, in fact, no, it might even have been a tape of. Uh, Chris's uh, Castrovalvo audio uh, book, and it the, the book really adds something to it, especially when we get to the Castrovalvo element, because it is it is very much a serial of two halves, and the whole Castrovalvo setup is exceptional. It's so engaging, it's so compelling. Uh, the the antagonist is the master, but apart from that, the the you, you you feel such empathy and sympathy for the cast of Alvins and these circumstances. And, and again, that lovely reveal where the doctor can't work it out. What's wrong with these books? And Shadavan said, yeah, the books are old, but they, and it's a great reveal. The books are old, but they tell the history of cast of Alva up to the present day, which is a glorious reveal. But the whole, the whole way that Chris tells the story is, um, it's it's really exceptional and original and something very different in Doctor. Love it, love it, love it. And I mentioned this in my Castor Valve episode as well, but there's the line in the book when the Doctor is examining the Chronicles of Castor Valva. And the line that Chris writes in the novelization is the doctor had concluded that experience was no substitute for books, which basically is some <laughs> that entire my entire childhood is encapsulated in that one line. Brilliant. 
and there's a lot of good stuff in Frontios as well, which I'll cover when that episode comes out. Yeah, I'm, one thing I've got two daughters, I know getting one seventeen, one's twenty, and they become they 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 both love the book. I mean, my my seventeen year old Jenny, I mean, she absolutely she just devours books, goes through one after another after another. Um, <laughs> well, she did <laughs> when she was about ten. I was sat in this very chair working away, and she came in, and and she had the, you know, for, I think the full circle novelization was on one side, or she'd looked at it and she picked it up, and she said, me, uh, "Did you write this in?" And she's flicking, <laughs> she, she, I've got it. She's flicking it. Did you write this in? I said, "Yes, yes, honey, I did." Oh, wow. And she she would tell you pages. What every word? <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 sweetheart. Yes, I did. And then she was like, "Well, all of it." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I wrote every every one. And then for a ten year old, she comes out with this question. She said, um, "Did you have an editor?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I wrote every word. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Couldn't quite couldn't quite get a head around the fact that yeah, so many pages, so many words. <laughs> I'd written them. Yeah. My 13-year-old was a guest on the show a couple of months ago for the Enlightenment episode. I know for Enlightenment, Cassie. Callie, yes. Uh, sorry, Callie, Callie. Sorry, Callie. Yeah, yeah. She read the entire book inside of two hours. I have not persuaded her to read a second one yet, but I'll, maybe I'll find a way to do it for the program. Wow. Now, God, that is uh, that. That's quick reading. Yeah. Also, she yeah, she devours books at frightening speed sometimes, but she, the comprehension is incredible. So these days, I can't read anything in two hours. It would take me uh, it takes me four days to read a novel because I, I break it up into episode parts and I go in small chunks. Well, I've done in my old job. I did a speed reading course actually, which reads about a course the faster you read, generally the comprehension goes down. And there are some things you don't need to comprehend too much if you but if you're in the book, you you want to, but uh, but that's impressive. She can, she can do that. I just got the um, the season twenty Blu-ray arrived ah. today through the post, and Enlightenment's on that, obviously. And I'm I love that. I love that serial. Um, and there's an I've noticed looking at the book. There's an interview with Barbara Clay. I don't know if that's been out before, but I'm really really looking forward to that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's that's quite an exceptional story. I ordered the UK release of the season 20 box that has not come to the States yet. I imagine it's en route, but I'll be covering that over on the Trap One podcast because season 20 is where I came in as, as a fan, basically. So I have tremendously fond memories of all those stories. I've had people, I'll tell you what, my first, my first definite memory of Doctor Who is the Yeti in the Underground and the Web of Fear. Now, I remember the Cybermen... Well, so I, but I don't know. They're in a few stories, so I don't know. Um, I mean, I do remember the invasion, but maybe I've got memories of earlier Cybermen. Um, but, uh, uh, but I've had people say to me their very first memories of Doctor Who are the Marshmen coming out of the marsh, which just makes me feel very, very old. <laughs> <laughs> God, you know, my first memories are black and white, and I just assume everyone's is, you know. But uh, 
yeah. But it, but it's nice. It's really nice when when people say that. What was it like for you in 2013 when Web of Fear was discovered and uh, re-aired for the first time in almost 50 years? Oh, it was beautiful. I mean, I'd, I'd heard there were, you know, some episodes were about to be announced. And I remember thinking, I couldn't be that lucky that it's a Web of Fear. Because I do so remember it. And I, I remember being scared by it. I remember the Yeti, watching the Yeti in the underground. And when they said that was one of the stories, I was like, wow, wow. You know, and again, just that chemical reaction like the Dominators were. Uh, and it was great to watch. It was great to watch and just think, yeah, I, I actually sat down and, as a very, very young kid and watched this, and now I'm watching it again. Um, along with Enemy of the World, which I had no memory of, but what a great story that is. Yeah, it was a revelation how good Enemy of the World mm was so that was a very exciting discovery hopefully there are more discoveries coming but it's been now 10 years since the last missing episode got returned so yeah there are always rumors and it's funny with them enemy of the world because i again i run quite a bit and i listen to audiobooks and i run and i was i i was on holiday in the north of scotland i was running and i was listening to this the the soundtrack of enemy of the world and i listened to it and i loved it and I tweeted about it, and I so much come back at me about how bad it was. And I thought, huh? But I just, just the audio. I'm even without seeing, and it and it is enhanced absolutely by the direction. It's um, it, it's it's a great looking serial. Um, uh, but I just thought I just thought the story was really good, and I couldn't I couldn't really understand it. Um, maybe the fact it was just that one episode. Which is not the best of of the episodes that that was available at that time. Maybe that, but um, no, it was it was really good, really good when when that serial came back and was so well regarded. When you're talking about a show that we have been watching as fans for literally decades, I'm coming up on my fortieth mm. anniversary of a fan, and you've already passed that. There's just no value for me in being hypercritical of old stories that were made in a different age by a production crew that has largely passed on. Now, I will make comical digs at a story like The Dominators just for the sake of a good running gag, and I'm very happy to give equal mm. time to you and to Fraser, who fondly, fondly remember The Dominators, but I don't understand the need to do a hate watch of Doctor Who 40, no. 50, 60 years later. These stories are finished is either you enjoy them or you find another show to watch so for somebody to take time out of their day to criticize enemy of the world now just boggles the imagination what are you doing with your life when that's the high point of your day criticizing a story that old and on uh, from a long bygone era i mean everyone's entitled to, to, to you know say i watch something and i didn't enjoy it or you don't take something out of it i mean inferno funny no just led to you i've just done you and dave Talking about Inferno, and I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to hate on it, but it's, I, I've never got, I've never understood the appreciation for that. I, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't trigger with me. I, 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 don't hate it. I don't, I, I, but I, I just, um, you know, friends like Stephen and Chris and Warren and, and the guys in the writers' room, you know, Radio Free Scar and the guys in the writers' room. I, I remember at the same time they both did episodes gushing about Inferno and I thought I'll give another go and I watch it and I but why did the Primords form? Why what is this gunk that comes out of the ground? Why is Liz 
why is Liz a military figure in the other world? Why is she there? She's a military figure, not a scientist. Things like that go off my head. And it doesn't. So I, I, I don't really dislike it. I, I, but I don't. And I've approached it very positively. I'm missing something here. And I watch it again, and, and it just doesn't trigger things for me. I don't think, oh, I don't want to watch it. I don't think, oh, I, I really don't like this. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, people watch full circle, or they watch anything, you know, and there'll be people going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm trying to say, you know, for me mostly things are, you know, I watched, I remember watching Invisible Enemy at the time, and the episode where they go in the doctor's brain, thinking, what the hell's going on? Here? This is ridiculous. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, but it's it's fun. You know, Underworld, I've learned to reappreciate Because, again, at the time, you know, people think, now, oh, well, at the time, that would have been fine, all this here. So, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Let me tell you. And I bet, no, it wasn't okay um, uh, at the time. Um, but, actually, I, 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 yeah, last time I watched Underworld, I, I really enjoyed it. And, in fact, I'm just doing a rewatch of, uh, well, continuing a rewatch, and I've, I'm, I was watching the Sunmakers today, so Underworld is next up. So who knows what I'll think next time around, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I've had Lewis Baston on the show a couple of times, and he did the Black Archive on Sunmakers. That is his absolute favorite. I'm very fond of it, too. I love it. I love it. I'll just say my three quick points in favor of Inferno. Number one, it's at that point, for the first seven years of the show, it's the most carefully written script because every line of dialogue in part one specifically prefigures some future plot development. So it's it's next-level writing that you weren't getting, certainly during a yeah, no, yeah, you, weaker stories. No, I'm going to revisit it because, you know, I, I you said that on the episode. I thought that's really interesting, and I'm going to, yeah. Gonna, uh, I can't just say as well. I again, I I just thought. Listen to you and Dave, and Dave. You know, I I I, I can't get my head around that. It. It's such a British show. This when I when I hear people from other parts of the world, and Dave being the TV guy, whatever as well. You know, and and just talking about his love for the towns of Wang Chiang and and just dropping names. And again that. Americans can just do this. What story am I? And just at the fingertips, they've got episode titles, you know, and just, is it this? Is it that? Oh, it's Dragonfire. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I'm just blown away by it, you know, because I just think it's such, it's such a British thing. But I love it. I've been to one American convention, Galley, and I, oh, yes. I, I've just absolutely gobsmacked at, the level of love for the show and by, by, by people who are just so far away for a thing you think is just so very, very British, you know, it's, it's great. It's great. I am at galley almost every year. Yeah. I've known Barsky for almost a, a decade now, mm. and he's become a huge part of this show sitting in his house in Los Angeles and looking at his 2,800 book library of, movie and TV sci-fi nonfiction. One of my favorite days. I want to spend a lot of more time in that, in that library for sure. <laughs> He's got just a whole cabinet of Doctor Who reference books. And that's only a small fraction of his collection. He has everything. 
I remember you saying, yeah, if you just retired and that was your job to keep reading, you could just keep reading and reading and reading in that room. Yes, I mean, I'd have a lot of competition from him. We'd have to coordinate the hours, but... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and try and hide, keep hiding that machine from his wife. <laughs> <laughs> the fortune telling machine you were talking about. So what was the year that you were at Galley? Uh, 2013. Yeah, t- oh god, yeah, ten years ago, over ten years ago, it was the fiftieth anniversary. God, it doesn't feel that long ago. Yeah, that was the year that uh, tickets sold out for fan attendees in about forty-five minutes, and I was wow. on a conference call for work. And by the time I got off, it was too late. That was the last galley that I missed intentionally, or unintentionally, I should say. And I, I very nearly didn't go. I, I, um, you know, I was in counterterrorism and policing at the time, and I had to do this. Uh, I was given this job uh, of doing a like a, a national review of of uh, and policing, basically, and uh, and I very nearly then go. What I had to do was just basically not have very late nights and then come back and then skip back as quickly as I could the next week and get to hit the ground and straight on traveling the UK doing this review. So I very nearly then go, but it also meant I couldn't really completely get into it um, because I had to have early nights and uh and what have you but it was it was it, it was a real experience it it was and people were so friendly so welcoming and i think it was something like three thousand people there yes that was, one like of, that. that was one of the biggest ones yeah yeah no oh, very very impressive and um and you've got an impressive one with you because you're in long island aren't you so you've got li who uh, yes, I'm in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is right. geographically Long Island, although it's considered New York City and not Long Island politically. So it's about a 60-mile drive to Elihu, but I go every year because it's so close by. You can't not go. 60 miles so close by. Yeah, a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in Surrey. I mean, for me to get to the center of London from here, I mean, I'm just in Surrey. I, I, I say a bit I'm in London. I'm where I live, I'm about one mile away from the London border, oh, wow. um, but it's 16 miles to uh, like the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben and, and that. So, you know, by by your terms, <laughs> you know, I walk down the street really. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm 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 in being in New York City. I'm a, I, I live a four minute walk from the nearest subway station, so I could be at the most important parts of Manhattan within 20 to 45 minutes, depending on where I'm going. Right, right. The L.I. Who drive is a lot longer because there's always traffic, no matter what time of day or night. The Long Island Expressway is always choked full of cars. But I just uh, plug an audio book or a podcast onto my car stereo, and the, the time goes by pretty quick. Yeah, it's good to do. And having the audio books. I listened to the Marco Polo novelization one year. That was a fun drive. See, I've not read that one. I need to. I need to rediscover. I need to go and uh, discover some of the earlier. But I haven't. I've started listening to the Highlanders episode today, which has just dropped, and I'm very interested to hear the rest of it. you and Dan. It's Daniel, isn't it? You. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because um, I've been to the Culloden battle site a couple of times, but earlier this year I was there. Actually, didn't realise, but it was the day before the anniversary. Oh wow! And it, it's a really interesting place to go in Culloden. The Battle of Culloden is actually there's probably there's, there's probably a way of telling a you know that story another way in Doctor Who. I was thinking about it today actually while I was listening. That is there some way to kind of 
tell that story in more detail from Jamie's Jamie before the battle. I was trying to think it might be a way around that because it is very interesting because the uh, the the this Bonnie Prince Charlie's force he really made. Uh, you you might talk about this in the episode, but they made some real tactical errors. They they did a night march to Nairn to try and surprise the government forces. They're not even English forces because a lot of Scots on the government side. And then marched back, and they were absolutely exhausted the next day. And they should have retreated to Inverness, and they didn't. And then they advanced through marshland up up an incline, and and that's all clear when you go to the battlefield. Anyway, I'm I'm, I'm going on about something here, but um, uh, yeah, so I'm very interested, isn't that episode? Which people listening to this will have heard by now, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> well. We played 20 questions earlier, mm. and my understanding is that you have decided to turn the tables, and you, you have a game from me. I do. I do. So I have. Uh, right. Now I'm going to try and lift these down without you seeing them. <laughs> <laughs> I see nothing. Actually, I'm going to call in a substitute now because. Uh, right. Let me bring in a substitute. Because what well one of because one of them uh, so this isn't part of the quiz is going to be at a signed right so the quiz is I'll read out the opening line or two or three lines from a target novelization and see if you can recognise them the one I was going to do but I won't know for obvious reasons it began at a sign from Captain Revere the diggers put up their picks and stood as still as the shadows on the chill rock walls. <laughs> Which is what you're reading at the minute. It's Frontios, of course. He said nothing as he knelt to collect more of the rock samples. He had been silent for days now, leaving it to Brazen, his second-in-command, to give the few necessary orders. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, when I have the book at my fingertips, that is probably not the best choice. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm going to break you. Okay, I've got five here. So I'm going to break you in gently. Through the ruin of a city, stop the ruin of a man. One of the most famous first lines in Terence Dix's entire library. I was fortunate to have Target writer John Peel on the show to discuss that one uh-huh. a couple of years ago. That is Doctor Who and the Dalek Invasion of Earth. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And number two. The hot January sun beat out of the cloudless blue sky. And a warm northeast wind blew the coral sea into a roaring froth over the Great Barrier Reef. The only place where the January sun is hot is below the equator, and the Great Barrier Reef is Australia. And I just, that was the book that I recorded live at Galley this past February, six months ago. <laughs> So that is going to have to be Doctor Who and the Enemy of the World by Ian Marker. Ta-da! Yes, it is. Absolutely. And the next one. Here we go. The long, low room housed three separate rows of control consoles and technicians and resembled Cape Kennedy tracking station in miniature. At one end, the interior of a space capsule had been projected onto a large screen. Two astronauts were seated at the capsule controls. 
my very first Doctor Who convention was in Manhattan at the now defunct Roosevelt Hotel in 1985. And my father took me very reluctantly, and we spent most of our day in the dealer's room until the events started, and I attended a screening of Dalek Invasion of Earth before the American syndication package. And the book that you are describing, I purchased that afternoon in the dealer's room and spent a lot of time reading in the hotel lobby in between events. That would have to be Jerry Davis, Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet. Ta-da! Yes, it is. The, the emotional rush that I get from seeing that cover is just as great as the oh. emotional rush that I got from seeing that cover in the dealer's room in 1985. And I remember when I got there, so I, I, again, I got such a rush being able to read that first story. Copyright 1976. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I was 14-ish. Uh, ah. Right, how many is that? That's three. I've got three. Okay. Uh, right, okay. Chris, here we go. Right, next one. Chris was dying. Painfully, he dragged his insect-like body away from the blazing ruins of the shattered spaceship. Only a powerful survival instinct kept him alive and moving. Two of his legs were broken and he scrabbled painfully across the razor-sharp rocks with the remaining four. See, that throws me off, because when you say Kariz, that's very close to the character that Conrad played for Big Finish. Kariz. <laughs> but it is not a Big Finish novelization. I will tell you exactly why I bought that book. When I watched Brain of Morbius on TV for the first time at age 11, Philip Madoc keeps saying the word lobolatry. I'm like, what word is that? I've never heard of that word before. So I ran to the bookstore to figure out what is this word that I don't know. Turns out it's laboratory, but it's the, the British pronunciation. So it is doc, Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius. Laboratory. Yes. <laughs> oh, speaking, speaking of pronunciation, by the way, it's the leisure hive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure it is, and, and bless your heart, but here in the States, it is the leisure hive. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, right, I've got two left. Let me go for... Well, like, I'll give you them both, so make it six. Right, okay, next one. Luigi Rossini came down the steps of his caravan and looked about him with satisfaction. Most people wouldn't have been, wouldn't have seen much cause for pleasure. A tatty little circus setting up in a muddy field. But Luigi Rossini, who had been born Lou Ross in Hoxton 50 years ago, saw things differently. Is there any better moment when you're watching Doctor Who in order than seeing Roger Delgado jump athletically out of the box, out of the back <laughs> of the horse box, down to the ground, and then marching up and hypnotizing Lou Russell? That has to be Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons. Of course it is. Yes. My copy is autographed by Terence Dix himself, the one time that I met him, L.I. Who, 2014. Wow. Brilliant. Right. Okay. Now, this one, if you, I want you to identify and tell me what is so special about this this one in terms of target publication. I, I, have, I don't expect you to be flummoxed by this at all. But anyway, main thing, here's the opening. Chapter 1. Space Station J-7 defied all sense of what was structurally possible. Its 
architneers reveling in the freedom of zero gravity had created an ethereal tracery of loops and walls and cusps that formed a constantly changing pattern as the station rotated slowly upon its axis. I think that is the only book out of the six which has not yet been covered Correct. on Doctor Who literature. And that means I have not read it in a long time. But Space Station G J7 is triggering specific memories of Target Book Number 100, the only book written in full by the great Robert Holmes. That would have to be Doctor Who, The Two Doctors. Six out of six. Make it seven out of seven with a bonus. The 100th Doctor Who novel. That was filmed in Spain in August 1985. No, no, it was filmed in August 84, exactly a year before my trip to Spain. So I just missed seeing the Doctor Who production crew by one year. Uh -huh. we, were, we were in Seville as part of our bus tour, walking through some of those same streets. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't, I don't need to tell you, the, the, the prologue for the Time War is actually written by Robert Holmes. Because uh, he got that far and said, so nah, nah, I'm not really getting on with prose. Terence, can you do it? When you get to that episode in my back catalogue, Conrad does a reading of a portion of the prologue. It's one of the best things that I've ever listened to. Oh, I must... Uh, yeah, I, I, I must put that one high up the list, actually. And can I just say, I love Jim's uh, musical interludes and these little skits. And the, the the song, the the shanty song he did on Lightning, I loved it to bits. It's uh, oh god, yeah, yeah, you <laughs> you've really lucked out having Jim on board. And there's a YouTube video for that too. Yeah, no, Jim is Jim, Jim has done so much for the show. He's recorded a lot of songs for episodes that aren't coming out for months, but he is he is amped and he is ready to go. Yeah, he's such a lovely guy. Because I I'd known of Jim for years, and then we 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 just met at this party in London, um, uh, a couple of months ago now. And what a lovely, lovely guy, Jim. I'm well. I know you'll be listening. Hello again. See you soon. I hope. Or let's have another drink. It's a fantastic company. It's really, really lovely to meet him. And uh, and yeah, he's the reason. You know, I've discovered the podcast, and I and I absolutely love it. It's it's been a real pleasure. It's kept me company on most of my runs recently. And uh, oh, it's, uh, you've done a, a great job. And I honestly, I was thinking, of, you know, because I'm going to be moving out maybe in the next year or two. Um, I was, you know, already thinking, maybe clearing some things out and saying, well, I haven't read the Target books in a while. Maybe I'll load them. But uh, no way now. I'm, I'm going to start working my way through them again. Oh, oh, well, I've already made a start on it. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you very much. So glad to hear that. Thank you. Now, you were showing me some goodies before we started recording. Yes. So I want to wrap up this episode through a guided tour of your collection. The first thing that you showed me, which I am still flabbergasted by, is you have a foreign language novelization, which in its translated tongue has some rather chilling word choices. Yeah. So in um, uh, January of 1992, I went on a ski holiday to Austria. A place called Zellamsee, and at a shop there, I found this book called, uh, written by one Terence Dix, and called Doctor Who und der Planet der Daleks. <laughs> and it's the German language version of Doctor Who, and you'll never guess the planet of the Daleks. And I can always remember, I can always remember the, the opening line: Der große Weiss hat a man like so still, als er war tot. 
the tall white-haired man lay as still as death. But looking at, um, so, uh, yeah, if I can find it, you know, looking at the, the, the language that's here, the, um, so in the original English, I'll just find it and bear with me because I'm nearly there. So at the Dalek control room, stand by, stand by. And of course, now I can't find it. Uh, right, so the original English is, in the central control area, the Dalek commander, military leader of the expedition to Spyridon, was listening to the report of his second in command. That's on page 42. And then on page 41 of the, the German version, it's in central in control room, Hörter der Dalek commandant in militarische Expeditionsführer nach Spyridon den Bericht seines zweiten Befehlshabenden zu. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so you got, you know, Dalek Commandant, militarische Expeditionsführer nach Spyridon den Bericht seines zweiten Befehlshabenden zu. Again, you know, words that, again, we, we're sort of more used to hearing in the context of... Um, you know, like a uh, an Alistair McLean, well, any any kind of I I I would say war story, but the commandant, Führer, and uh, yes, in German language later on, uh, we get the German uh, sorry the uh, the dialect German language uh, version of this says alarm alarm alarm, Fremde werden von falschem Dalek begleitet, sofort suchen und exterminieren. Ooh, wow. Hunt them down and exterminate. So yes, the exterminating that appeared in the which story was it? It wasn't some Taran stratagem, was it? It was um someone yeah, with Martha and they were in Germany. Got an exterminating, exterminating. Terrible, isn't it? You get in the twenty first century and it all gets a little foggy at times. But uh but yeah, it's it's a it, yeah, it's a nice um nice little artifact. To have. I was very pleased to get it. I, I, yeah, I, I did learn German at school. I've, I've got some passing German, and it's, uh, yeah, but it's still the Dalek Verfolger Varjets Sean said. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's kind of outside my German vocabulary, really. I do not collect any of the foreign language versions because I would not be able to read them. But for my 50th birthday, Graham Burke of the Reality Bomb podcast just gave me the American paperback 1967 edition of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, which has this phenomenal, I'll show it to you, cover art because it's a bold red and blue cover scheme. Uh -huh. And it appears to be miniature toy Daleks on a photo collage cover. All right. Now, I already have a copy of... Doctor Who and the Daleks. Is this the advanced 50th birthday present? Well, I my 50th birthday party was uh, last week, and the actual birthday is coming up next month. Yeah, I, I, heard, I remember you said it in advance. Congratulations in advance, by the way. Happy birthday when it comes. <laughs> yeah, the, the actual birthday is the day after my kids bought Mitzvah, and I am not stealing her thunder by having two parties in the same weekend, so I moved my 50th to accommodate her. Wow. So this the drop shadow on the yeah. font makes up for the fact that there's no Doctor Who logo. Yeah. And then it, it appears to be toy Daleks in, in the. How bizarre. 
and it's 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 the same it's the same text it's the same text although they've changed the um, quotation marks to American style but otherwise you can see all oh, right yeah yeah the lake of mutations yeah and then there's an advertisement for another paperback look, book line on, on the back <laughs> of the paperback which you don't see a lot of with the Weird. the uh, original targets cross pollinated ads oh well, that's lovely Graham. Yeah, and I've heard him on your show, and I, again, Reality Bomb, I, I love as well, and the gallery of the uh, the underrated and what have you. But uh, yeah, always always good to listen to Graham, and that's 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 a lovely present. Oh, I was just just delighted. Yeah, I was on Gallery of the Underrated many years ago to talk about the Crotons. I enjoy the Crotons as much as you and Fraser enjoy the Dominator. So I'm always happy <laughs> to talk about the Crotons. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is coming up very soon on this show. Right. So ah. So the other things that you showed me before we started recording are a couple of thick envelopes that make me want to reach through the screen and <laughs> grab and examine. <laughs> what do you have there? This, this was really odd. As I explained, I went up into the loft because I thought, right, I had the idea to do this thing of like the target books, do the opening quotations and suit you thought. And next to that was a box with some like uh, scripts and things, a couple of envelopes, and one of which had the contract for the full circle organization, which I, I did, I did not know I had. Um, and it's about seven or eight pages, and and I was looking looking for dates on it. What it's the, the interesting thing is, and I, as my memory was, I've been asked to deliver a, uh, a forty thousand word manuscript. The, the the contract actually says a manuscript of no more than forty thousand words and no less than thirty thousand. Huh. So if I chosen to. I could have delivered seventy-five percent of what I actually did. In fact, I, I think I'd overwritten because I I discovered from um uh, a, a a note attached to the audio book when it came out actually from David uh, David uh, J Howard done the excellent the Target book which I've got um, an overview of all the target organisations was that I hadn't realised but actually the font size was reduced when Full Circle was uh, published huh. in order to fit it into 120 pages. Um, so I suspect I did more than 40,000. But that surprised me. So, again, one of the things at the time is I think up to that point, the books were becoming, and I know you've done a few now where you commented on it, the books were becoming a little thin and a bit slight. And I remember getting, I mean, I love Times of Wayne Chime, but I got the novelization, and I was a, a little, I remember being at the time a little disappointed how, how slim it was for a six-part story um but in terms of the contract you know you you could deliver a relatively low word count um and the other thing which i haven't even properly looked at yet here it is um it is a draft of the full circle novelization and i haven't had this out for well years it's the novelization manuscript from page, well, from chapter three onwards. Wow. And, uh, oh, there's a contract. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and it's got my handwritten notes on it, which I need to look through because I haven't looked at these in years. And mostly, I think it's just, because, again, we this is obviously written on a typewriter, and we didn't have copy and paste or... Uh, cut and paste at the time. You just went through. You made notes, and then you wrote it out again, longhand. Uh, 
yeah, and just you know changes of phrases and there's a whole new section written at the bottom of the page there. Oh wow! I'm just showing up. So I can see what the original was. Logan had watched with this day, says the doctor had just from the pouch in his pocket. There, God, dreadful writing. The remains of the spider from the cave. So that was not the original draft. It's something I decided, having read the first draft, to amend. So this is, well, I think most pages have got changes I've written for myself. Yeah. I'm quite interested to read through that myself, actually. That has been in, that's been shut away for years and years and years. But there you are. This is... Oh, Doctor Who Publishing Agreement. It's got the yeah. logo on it, the show logo on the contract. That's terrific. Yeah, yeah. And it's about, well, one, well, actually more pages than I thought. It's supposed to be about a dozen pages. And, uh... All sorts of counting legal talk and advance and royalties and specifications. Here we are. The work shall contain not more than 40,000 words and not less than 30,000 words. Should the work exceed the agreed length, the publisher shall be free to make such cuts as it shall consider to be necessary. The author shall deliver two legible copies of the completed type manuscript of the work to the publisher on or before 31st of January 1982. Yeah. Like I say, I only rediscovered this half an hour before we started talking. So that's fine. Yeah, oh, that's uh, yeah, that that would have remained up there, and I wouldn't have known it was there. Otherwise, I have heard that when you submitted the manuscript, there was an epilogue showing the Starliner crash landing on another planet, and then the whole cycle begins anew. And the story goes that John Nathan Turner would not allow that to be published because it changes the televised story. So is that true? And do you have that epilogue? And how long was it? It is true. He uh, might have decided to cut it because it was rubbish. You um, <laughs> 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 uh, may be quite right doing that bit. No. Right. The last page I've got here is... Doesn't include it, no. Uh, no, whatever lay ahead, the last words are, whatever lay ahead for the Doctor, Man, and K-9, in any space or beyond, Adric was no very much a part of it. So that's, um, so that is very much what's in the novelization. But I do have a memory of doing that and getting the note that, no, we're going to cut that. But I, I yeah. It might be he thought it's not consistent with this. this I just thought it's absolute pants. But she, he may have been correct. Yeah. I didn't have any major complaint with that. It was a, a, a little flourish. But I was very, very, very pleased to write the novelization. I was actually initially approached for Terence to write it. And I said, uh, no, I'd, I'd like to do it myself, please. Um, and I, you know, and I, I was very pleased with it. I'll ask one last question. The poem that appears in the book, which Jim Sangster did a phenomenal job narrating with a musical accompaniment, had you written that poem for the TV script and then used a fragment of the poem in the script itself? Or was that written in full for the novelization? It was written for the novelization. 
and I was I was particularly keen to get some mention of the planet that has slept. Mm, that's right. The- Awakes unleashing dead, uh, terror, bringing death that you forget. The the title um, became full circle very late in the day, and it wasn't my choice. And, and if I wasn't really happy, with it, I thought the planet that slept, which was the original title, um, I I thought was much more impactful. And in fact, if you go on the season eighteen Blu-ray and you you download the the documents, the 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 scripts on there are all called the planet that slept. The Megalos scripts are also called the Last Soul for Thurin right. on the Blu-ray. The State of Decay scripts are all called The Wasting, because, again, all of those had the titles changed fairly late in the day. Um, so, no, no, the, the poem was, was written for the, the novelization. There you go. Well, Andrew, I cannot thank you enough for listening to my show and spreading the word and agreeing to talk to me. I'm going to schedule you to come back for an upcoming book, which is to be determined. I'd love to. But I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your evening and sharing your memories with us. And you did not stump me on the quiz, but maybe next time you will. I doubt it very, very much. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll see if I can improve on, on the 20 questions next time. But Jason, thanks for a lovely podcast. Thanks to all your guests as well. I, I just love every episode I've listened to. And, um, it's, 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 you know, the, the guests are so diverse as well. And they, they bring such passion and, and and such engagement with the novels and such interesting viewpoints. And and some that I've known before, like Graham, uh, you know, I, I've heard elsewhere. It's lovely to hear Conrad, actually. I knew so well as, as Keras. Conrad, I... Uh, uh, yeah, lovely to listen to, and Fraser standing up for the Dominators and uh, and some of the others, and uh, Dave Barsky. Uh, yeah, I could listen to him forever. Everyone, and then I could just go on and on. And Jim, he brings so much to it as well. And Jim, thank you once again for uh, letting me know about the podcast. Thanks very much. All those guests are coming back very soon. I'm recording with David again next week for an upcoming season 21 novelization. I look, I look forward to you hearing it. I look forward to listening. <laughs> and my thanks again to Andrew Smith for joining me in a conversation recorded in mid-September 2023. Andrew is definitely going to be back on the show at least one more time before the podcast reaches its natural end with the conclusion of the Target Books Hopefully more than that. Andrew, thank you again, buddy. Next week on Doctor Who Literature, we are rejoining Season 21, already in progress. Coming back to the show is co-producer David Barsky, who you've heard Andrew Smith say such nice things about. David and I have recorded a conversation by Coastal this time, New York to L.A., no longer in the same room. David in his phenomenal library and me at home in Brooklyn, talking about a story over which we both have very strong feelings. The penultimate Peter Davison story, the third to last story of season 21, Peter Grimwade's final Doctor Who novelization based on his final Doctor Who TV script, but not his final book, as we will also discuss. It is a story that writes out several Doctor Who Companions, following the loss of Tegan in a novelization that has not come out yet, and following the loss of the TARDIS hat stand 
in the Frontios novelization, we are going to say goodbye to two more companions, but we are going to say hello to Doctor Who, Planet of Fire. Thank you for joining me on a bonus episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. Special thanks to my special guest, Andrew Smith. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, on Mastodon at DR Who Novels at Mastodon.social, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.